This is Orson Welles on the Air, featuring the old-time radio performances of the legendary Orson Welles. Welcome back to Orson Welles on the Air. On this episode, we'll join Orson Welles in the lives of Harry Lyme. Series that originally aired from August of 1951 to July of 1952 over Radio Luxembourg would eventually run over Mutual Stations and Canada's CBC Radio. Our story today is from March 21st, 1952. It's titled Faith, Lime, and Charity. Presenting Orson Welles as the third man. The Lives of Harry Lyme. The fabulous stories of the immortal character originally created in the motion picture The Third Man. With Zither Music by Anton Karras. Friends, the title of this story is Faith, Lime, and Charity. You see, I've been told by many people many times that I'm a hopeless case. But they're so wrong. Hopeless? Why, I'm full of hope. And for that matter, full of faith and charity. Faith in the great universal sucker. Hope that he's coming my way. And charity. Well, there's one cause that's always right in front of me. Every time I shave. Orson Welles as Harry Lyme, the third man, in today's story, Faith, Lyme, and Charity. Wealthy tourists have always been attracted by the romance of India and the beautiful Taj Mahal. And Harry Lyme has always been attracted by the romance of beautiful and wealthy tourists. It was with this idea in mind that I took the train from New Delhi to Agra, which is the ancient capital city of India where the Taj is located. These travelers' shrines are happy hunting grounds for a gentleman of fortune like myself, who, pardon my stress on the gentleman, I felt I earned the title by listening politely to the interminable prattle and snivelings of Mrs. Haley, the missionary's wife with whom I shared my compartment. I couldn't know that this innocent chit-chat would lead to bloodshed within 48 hours and that the blood shed would be mine. I suppose you're going to Agra to see the Taj Mahal, Mr. Lyon. <laughs> yes, among other things, Mrs. Haley. I could tell you were a cultured gentleman the first moment I laid eyes on you, oh, Mr. Lyon. 
but all too many people see the beauties of India and never give a thought to the poor benighted people. Yeah, uh, we yeah. must think of them, Mr. Lyme. Don't you agree? Uh, oh, yes, absolutely. My husband is the Reverend Mr. Halley, you know. He's the head of the mission at Nandi Devi. He's given his whole life to these poor natives, caring for their bodies and their souls. Oh, that's very nice. <laughs> we have an orphanage there, you know. One of the finest... A terrible thing happened. Such a terrible thing. We had a fire just last week. Here, uh, look at these clippings. Orphanage at Nanda Devi, destroyed by fire. Medical aid rushed to mission. Oh, I'm, I'm very sorry, Mrs. Hedden. Uh, that picture, uh, that's my husband, Mr. Halley, standing there among those poor little Indian children. If I don't raise the money, he'll be heartbroken. The money? Yes. Yes, that's why I'm going to Agra. We need... Three thousand pounds right away to cover the emergency. And when we heard that Lady Edith Bannon Murdoch was in Agra, we decided to approach her. She's very wealthy and her family had always helped the mission. I'm sure she'd never miss three thousand pounds. And the mission needs it so dreadfully. But, oh, oh dear, I just dread speaking to her. I'm not well, you know, and... With the shock of the fire and everything. Well, let me close the window. Perhaps there's too much draft where you're sitting. Oh, oh thank you, Mr. Lionel. That's awfully kind That's of you. Right. Oh, my, it's nice to find someone who's thoughtful. I'm so glad we happen to share this compartment. Oh, so am I, Mrs. Hattie. So am I. Uh, tell me more about this lady, Edith... Um, uh, what's her name? Oh, lady Edith Bannon Murdoch. <laughs> She's in Agra with her fiancé, Sir Ernest Elfing, and his mother. I'm sure her heart will be moved by the plight of these poor orphans. But I'd give anything if I didn't have to approach her myself. If only I were stronger. Now, Mrs. Halley, this is only a suggestion, and you're quite free to say yes or no. But I was wondering if it might be helpful if someone else approached Lady Edith on behalf of the mission. Myself, for instance. You? Well, oh. that's awfully kind of you, oh, Mr. Lyman. But I don't know. Well, perhaps it would be a good idea. By the time we arrived in Agra, the missionary's wife had gratefully agreed to let me approach Lady Edith for the cash. Here I should add, I think for the benefit of those with sensitive dispositions that I had no intention of making off of the 3,000 pounds needed by the orphanage. But I calculated that if Lady Edith was good for 3,000 pounds, she was good for five, three for the orphans and two for Harry Lyme. After all, if a man gives three-fifths of his income to charity, who can complain? This was a great stroke of luck, a ready-made scheme for relieving the overly rich. And so, armed with the credentials and the clippings Mrs. Haley had given me, I set out to find Lady Edith. Just as I arrived at the steps of the consulate where she and her party were staying, a large limousine drew up. I heard angry voices and hid behind a month-old copy of the London Times. I don't care, Ernie. I think you're a miserable sport. Keep your voice down, Edith, and remember poor Ernie's indigestion. I'm tired of remembering poor Ernie's indigestion. Well, if you're going to marry him, you'll have no choice. Ernest was always a frail boy. But we came all the way to Agra to see the Taj Mahal. Oh, I'm afraid Mother's right, Edith. I just don't feel up to anything tonight. Oh, you would insist that we go to that native place to eat and all that blasted curry. Oh, I, I feel wretched. Oh, come on, Ernie. You'll feel better out there in the open air. Couldn't we go tonight, just we two? 
Remember how we used to talk about seeing the Taj by moonlight? Oh, I'm sorry, my dear. Really, I am. It's almost oh, twilight now. The moon's coming up. Oh, it would be lovely. Do come, Ernie. Well, well, I'm absolutely against it. You'll have to wait for another night when Ernest is feeling better. Yes. I can't have him out in the night air with his stomach upset. That's right. Yeah, p- perhaps tomorrow it's night. It's tonight I... or never. Ernie? Oh, I, I think I'd better lie down. Oh, you're impossible. Now calm yourself, my dear Edith. Don't be so impulsive. Come along inside and we'll have a nice, quiet evening together. Edith, where are you going? Driver, take me to the Taj Mahal. Oh, but Edith, you can't go out there by yourself. Oh, can't I? My chivalrous soul could not bear the thought of the lovely lady Edith having to visit the romantic Taj Mahal all alone. So I hailed one of the ancient and unlikely taxis that catered to tourists. Driver? Driver, take me to the Taj Mahal. Yes, I... I could have walked faster. The streets were thronged with children and donkeys and debris. And finally we reached the great red sandstone wall which guards the Taj. I jumped out and paid the driver. His bony fingers closed over the rupees. They touched my hand. For the first time I noticed the native driver's face. The cheeks were sunken and the eyes glowed strangely like dark coals. I stared at him, fascinated as he spoke. Remember... He who betrays the little one shall pay with his blood. Mm, yes. Then he was gone. I entered the gates. There it was. Taj Mahal by moonlight. The loveliest building in the world. Standing beside one of the four slender minarets, the loveliest woman in the world. And I approached her. She seemed not to see me. As if she were in a trance. I stood close beside her, but still she gave no sign that she was aware of my existence. We stood in silence, gazing at the shimmering reflections in the pool. It's lovely, isn't it? Yes. It's the loveliest thing I've ever seen. It's been said, the sight of the Taj Mahal marks a new era in a mortal's life. That's exactly the way I feel, as if this were the beginning of a new era for me. All the old things and the ugly things and the shabby things left behind. Only beauty. It could be that way, Lady Edith. You know my name? Oh, yes. If that were all I ever knew, it would be enough. That and the memory of these few moments here by the Taj. Who are you? Hmm? My name is Harry Lyme. How did you know me? I sought you out. I knew you'd be here alone. How could you have known? Sometimes the heart sees more clearly than the eye. I shouldn't let you talk this way. We only met a moment ago. What is time to do with it? We find the Taj Mahal beautiful not because it took 20,000 men 20 years to build it, but because Shah Jahan loved his beautiful queen so much at the moment of her death that he vowed their love would escape from time. It was at that moment that this beautiful monument was created, not 20 years later when the final gem was set. Important things happen quickly. In the twinkling of an eye, his whole life has changed. I almost believe you, but I must go. My car's waiting. Won't you let me drop you off, Mr. Lyon? That's very kind of you, Lady Edith. I'm staying at the Hotel International. Seated in the luxurious limousine, equipped with the correct English chauffeur, she became Lady Edith Bannon Murdoch. Gracious and casual. She chatted of this and that as if the moonlit scene had never taken place. 
By the time we stopped at the international bar for a drink, we were talking and laughing easily together. You know, this is the first really pleasant evening I've had since I arrived in India. Well, I'm honored. Some of the credit goes to the Taj Mahal, no doubt. <laughs> Some of the credit. India's an amazing country, you know, such beauty and such squalor side by side. That reminds me, not that I want to spoil this evening, but did you hear about the tragedy at Nanda Devi? Why, no. What happened? Here, look at these clippings. Mm-hmm. I handed her the clippings Mrs. Halley had given me. Her face softened with sympathy as she read the plight of the homeless orphans. Oh, what a shame. Those poor little children. Yes, coming up here on the train, I met Mrs. Haley, the missionary's wife. That's how I happened to know about it. She's a frail little creature for a big job of raising 5,000 pounds in the next few days to cover this emergency. I understand the mission is a poor one, but does an extraordinary amount of good work. Now they're in desperate trouble. Oh, how dreadful. Mm. And how kind of you to be so concerned. Well, Mrs. Haley's story touched me considerably, so much so, in fact, that I agreed to help her raise the money. Have you had much success? None at all so far. Oh, it's too bad. I have a dreadful confession to make, Lady Edith. That's why I followed you to the Taj Mahal tonight. Mrs. Haley read in the paper that you were in Agra and asked me to approach you on behalf of the orphans. Oh, is that why you approached me? On behalf of the orphans? Well, that's why I followed you. But once I'd seen you, I'm afraid the whole thing went right out of my mind. <laughs> I don't understand. Perhaps you. it's old-fashioned, but now that our acquaintance is on a more personal basis, I couldn't use it, that's all. No, I'm sorry I even told you about Nanda Devi. I'm glad you did. Let's just forget about it, shall we? No, we shall not. In spite of your foolish chivalry or whatever it is, we shall not forget it. I insist on making the contribution. You, you do? Yes, I do. How much money did you say the mission was? Five thousand pounds to cover the emergency and start rebuilding the orphanage, but all this makes me feel... Oh, don't be ridiculous, Harry. I really must get back to the consulate now. When will I see you? How about tomorrow night? At the Taj? Very well. I'll have the money for you then. In a moment, Orson Welles returns as Harry Lyme, the third man. Harry Lyme, the third man, continues today's story, Faith, Lyme, and Charity. I awoke the next morning to find my breakfast waiting for me. Evidently one of the native servants had brought it while I was asleep. On the tray, under one of the dishes, I found a note written in a strong hand that said, Remember the little one. I pushed the food away from me. And that night, I met Lady Edith at the Taj Mahal once more. 
She gave me the packet of bills, which I put in my pocket with a few more protests, and then we lingered on. She wore a simple evening dress, and there was a white scarf I remember over her head. You know, if the king, Jahan, could have seen you tonight, I think he would have forgotten about his queen forever. And then he wouldn't have built the Taj, and we should all be poorer. He would have built it for you. I noticed someone coming through the gates at the far end of the courtyard. Something about the slope of the shoulders looked familiar. As the figure approached, I saw that it was Sir Ernest, Lady Edith's fiancée. She rose to her feet. Ernie, what are you doing here? I might ask the same question, Edith. Come along. I won't be spoken to like a child. What does this mean? It means that you are coming back to the consulate with me. Oh, I'm doing nothing of the kind. Oh, Edith, please. You must come with me. I'll explain everything later. Oh, very well, Ernie. I think it's rather rude of you. Good night, Mr. Lyme. I hope we'll meet again. I hope so, Lady Edith. Good night. Ernie, I wish you'd tell me. Something was up. Now all I had to do was get out of Agra and fast. There was nothing to stand in my way. Nothing but a white turban native who suddenly appeared out of the shrubbery. You will come with me. Well, who are you? A friend of the little one. Well, I'm very sorry, but I have some business to attend to. Do not force me to use this gun. Look here, what do you want, over? You will do as I order. You will walk slowly through the gates. I will be a few paces behind you with this gun hidden in my cloak. You will not attempt to attract the guards in any way. If you make one sign or one move as we pass them, it will be the last foolish thing you ever do. I, Mustafa, swear it by the beard of the prophet. Okay, okay, old man. Go. Oh, no, you don't! As the native came abreast of me, I quickly threw my weight against him. It's the only advantage I had. My life was dear to me, but so were the 5,000 pounds. He was caught off balance. I grabbed the skinny wrist and forced the gun out of his hand. But suddenly the other hand was holding a knife. It grazed my cheek. Doc, now you will pay! I used my head like a battering ram and sent him sprawling. In another second, he'd be after me. There was a white wall by the roadway. I vaulted over it. I was out of condition. I got to my feet. And then I caught a glimpse of something crouched on the top of the wall behind me. He jumped like a monkey and landed on my back, throwing me to the ground again. This time I was really out of breath. He pinned me down. I felt his knees pressing into my ribs and the cold steel of his knife against the flesh of my neck. The soil on which you lie is holy soil. This is an ancient burying ground. I would not wish to desecrate it with the blood of an infidel, but it is for the little one. Allah will forgive now, me. Now, wait. Wait a minute. I'll, I'll, I'll do what you want. You will come with me with no further struggle? Yes, yes, anything you say. Just let me up. On your feet and be quick. Here, perhaps a kick in the ribs will give you speed, white dog. Oh. Now, quickly. Where are you taking me? Silence. Okay. We made our way between the tombs toward a ruined building with a dingy dome. Hurry! What is this? A poor man's Taj Mahal? It is an ancient mosque. Take off your shoes. What? Take off your shoes. This is a holy place. Oh, you take that knife away from my ribs and I will. I bring you to the little one. I saw a faint reddish glow from inside the mosque. It was a lamp held by a small figure, a woman's figure. She was wrapped in the women's garment of India, the sari. What kind of creature was this? We meet again, Mr. Lyme. Mrs. Halley, the missionary's wife. What are you doing here? Mrs. Halley, that was one of the greatest parts I ever played. For your information, my friend, Mrs. Halley is known by many names to many people, including the police. To my Indian friends, I am known as the little one. Oh, 
When I had to leave England, I decided that a clever person could make a good living from rich white tourists. I came through Nanda Devi a few days ago and heard about the orphans and the fire. My native spies already had Lady Edith under observation. This was too good a chance to miss. And so you posed as Mrs. Halley and used me to work for you. Exactly, my friend. I knew enough about Lady Edith's personal life to feel that an attractive gentleman would have a better chance than an old woman. And so I used you. <laughs> you have a fascinating mind, Annie, or whatever your name is. I think we might get along. Have a good laugh, Mr. Lyme. It will be your last one. What do you mean? Your usefulness to me has ended. I want the £5,000 you collected from Lady Edith. Oh, yes, I know the exact amount you asked her for. One of my men cleaned your table last night at the International Bar. Everything you said was reported to me. Oh, you're quite an operator, honey. Perhaps we can make a deal. We will make no deal. You will give me the £5,000. Mm. And if I don't? Mustafa will kill you. And if I give you the money willingly? Mustafa will kill you anyway. Oh. I leave no loose ends when I finish a job, Mr. Lyme. Your body will not be discovered here for days. By that time, I'll be gone. Now, come, we've wasted enough time. Hand over the money. As she'd been talking, the feel of the cold, slimy stone under my bare feet gave me an idea. It was the last desperate chance. The money, if you please. Help! My ankle! It's a snake! Help! A snake! Help! Must not kill it! She dropped the lamp in the confusion. I broke away from Mustafa, but not before his knife had slipped my shoulder. I ran across the courtyard holding a wound, the stones cutting my feet, the old woman's hysterics, and Mustafa's curses still ringing in my ears. I don't remember where I ran or even how I ran. All I remember is sinking to the ground behind an old tomb and lying there while Mustafa's footsteps ran by. I waited until everything was quiet. Perhaps minutes, perhaps hours, I don't know. Dragged myself up finally and found my way somehow back to the road. I was free. I had the money. Now all I had to do was get away from Agra. As far away as I could get, and fast. The pain in my shoulder was like fire. My coat sleeve was covered with blood. My feet were bruised, but I ran. Pain saw it. It seemed as if I were running down a hill that got steeper and steeper the further down I went. Finally, I reached the bottom. And then everything went black. When I woke, the Agra police were standing around me. I tried to sit up, but there seemed to be a great weight on my shoulder. I remembered about my arm. It had bandaged. Slowly the pain came back. The policemen were talking, but there was another voice I'd heard somewhere before. It was so earnest. This man is the imposter, I tell you. He collected 5,000 pounds from my fiancée for a Mrs. Halley for the mission at Vanderdevy. I checked with the mission and found that Mrs. Halley has been dead for eight years. He's a vicious criminal, I tell you. Just a minute, Ernie. Let him explain. After all, there is an orphanage at Nandadevi, and there was a fire a few days ago. It's not fair. Oh, don't be such a fool, Edith. Just because you developed some sort of ridiculous infatuation... Excuse me. I must make out a report. When did you first see this man, Lady Edith? His eyes are open. Let him talk. Mr. Lyme, Harry, what happened? I told Lady Edith and the police the truth. More or less the truth. I told them that I'd met the woman on the train who'd claimed to be Mrs. Halley and had been taken in by her, an innocent tool in her hands and all the rest of it. And Lady Edith believed my story. Couldn't tell about the policeman. He straightened up and spoke to another officer. Bring in the prisoner. The other policeman returned in a minute with a frail little figure. She glared at me. Is this the woman you met on the train, Mr. Lyme? Oh, yes, 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 yes. She's the one. You... 
How did you know I felt that way about snakes? Well, I took a chance, honey. I took a chance. Take it away. You can't do this to me. I'm a British subject. This man here is a criminal. He tried to do me out of 5,000 pounds. I'll vouch for Mr. Lyon's character, Inspector. There's no need for that, Lady Edith. Well, what do you mean, Inspector? I mean that we're very indebted to you already, Mr. Lyme. We picked this woman up on suspicion tonight. We've been watching her a long time, but we've never had any conclusive evidence against her. Now you've given us the testimony we need. Howling Annie, alias the little one, alias Mrs. Halley, won't be troubling wealthy tourists any longer. Oh, Halley, what a dreadful experience for you to be the innocent victim of that wretched woman. I know you never would have forgiven yourself if she'd got a hold of my money. No, you're quite right. I never would have forgiven myself. And thanks to you, the money's quite safe. Mm. The inspector found the packet in your coat and returned it to me. No? Oh? Oh, fine. I knew you'd be glad to hear it. And now I have a surprise for you that'll make all this trouble of yours seem worthwhile. You're coming to New Delhi with me next week. And so, ladies and gentlemen of the Missions Board of Northern India, it gives me great pleasure, on behalf of your well-known benefactor, Lady Edith Bannon Murdoch, to present the Reverend Dr. Halley with this check for 5,000 pounds for the restoration of the orphanage at Nanda Devi. Dr. Halley, your check. returns in just a moment. suppose it's true that every tale has a moral, even when the tale concerns Harry Lyme. A friend of mine supplied the moral of this one the other day. He just got back from India, and he told me that he'd seen the new orphanage at Nanda Devi, complete with foundation stone, which he assures me bears the words, in grateful tribute to Harry Lyme, philanthropist. Nicely carved, too, he told me, and rather appropriately, with a cold chisel. (laughs) 